right. Good morning. You can do a little bit better than that. Good morning. All right. That's more like it. Good. So make sure you're awake at this point. If you're not awake now, I'm in trouble. Um, somebody needs to explain to me the QR code controversy because like there seems to be a thing here. Is, are, are we over QR coding it or what's the problem? Just a lot of QR codes. You know what's hilarious? This week, I, we, we had our interior of our apartment fully painted, which is almost like moving. It's torture. But it's nice when it's done. And, you know, you're digging through all sorts of old stuff. I found, like, this article that I wrote 10 years ago. And in the article, it actually had a QR code. 10 years ago. Can, yeah, you know, Q, QR codes kind of had a peak. And then there was nothing. And then COVID came. And now they're back. And now we're, we're like, over QR coded. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is great to be here this morning. So fun uh, to celebrate and worship together. And uh, Marissa, man, just love how you bring us, you know, into the experience of of, of God and and just everybody that does so much uh, behind the scenes, the band and the hospitality people, tech. It's just uh, you know such a meaningful place to come and worship here in the city. But I want to tell you uh, today about something that's kind of been bugging me a little bit lately. And it's, uh, it's how I feel often when I hear a story about a, a celebrity describing their faith, okay? It's just kind of been bugging me a little bit when I hear a story about a celebrity describing their faith. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, I mean, I love a good celebrity for Jesus story, okay? I like that. But more often than not, it feels like they're super hesitant to say anything specific um, about Jesus or their Christian faith. Uh, one exception to this might be uh, Stephen Colbert. So last year, Stephen Colbert had Dua Lipa. Okay, I have to say this now. All right, so is it Lipa or is it Lipa, right? Well, you know, someone my age might not be as familiar with Dua Lipa. And so I d- Googled and said, you know, how do you say Dua Lipa's name to make sure that I come here and I say it right? And then I'm in our gathering before the service today, and, and our hip pastor, John Prine, you know, my junior is speaking about Dua, and he says, well, yeah, you know, John's going to be talking about Dua Lipa today. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it must be Dua Lipa. And so I started calling it Dua Lipa instead of Dua Lipa. And then I go to the younger, younger than John, Marissa, and I say, Marissa, like, you got to help me out. Is this like Dua Lipa or Dua Lipa? And she says, well, it's actually Dua Lipa. And I said, well, then you need to tell your boss that he's wrong. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> Dua Lipa. All right. Anyway, Stephen Colbert, not Colbert, (laughs) uh, had Dua Lipa on his show, and Dua Lipa asked Colbert a surprisingly um, honest question that I think caught him off guard. Maybe you saw this. She asked, what does your faith have to do with your comedy? What does your faith have to do with your comedy? And Colbert gave an incredibly thoughtful answer. Maybe you saw this. He began by telling his audience that he's both a Christian and a Catholic he referenced Jesus by name. He talked about how a death doesn't have the last word and that love and sacrifice and giving yourself to others is what life is actually all about. And it was honestly one of those genuinely beautiful moments that we rarely see on TV. Now, I hope this doesn't come off too critical, but it still seems to me that when it comes to responses like that, Colbert's sort of the exception. It seems like a lot of people, and, and not just celebrities, when asked about their faith, offer pretty non-committal answers. Okay, like Chris Pratt, when asked about his recent involvement in a church, said, I always feel like love tends to win out over fear. It's beautiful and nice, right? But not exactly a clear commitment to Jesus. Uh, Tom Hanks, who professes to be a Christian when pressed recently, said, oh, part of my faith comes from the belief that there are miracles everywhere and there's a mystery to it all. 
Again, you know, very nice, but not necessarily a resounding endorsement of Christianity, right? Or perhaps one of my favorites recently, movie actor Mark Wahlberg, who actually was a part of um, uh, New Kids at one time, then he quit. Uh, but he promoted a prayer app in an Instagram post by saying, hey, I'm Mark Wahlberg here, reminding you to pray up and be blessed. <laughs> now, okay, don't get me wrong, okay? Uh, I am grateful that celebrities are talking about their faith. And let me just say up front, I have failed way more times than I've gotten it right when I talk about my faith. But when you listen closely, doesn't it seem like, doesn't it seem like fewer and fewer people have much to say about Jesus or being a Christian? And I would suggest that one of the reasons people are having a hard time outright claiming that they are Christians is I think Christianity has a PR problem. I think Christianity actually has a PR problem. Check this out. In a Barna uh, survey earlier this year, 42% of people with no faith say that the hypocrisy of Christian people causes them to doubt the Christian faith. The hypocrisy of Christian people, they say, causes them to doubt the Christian faith. In a 2022 poll conducted by Ipsos for the Episcopal Church, of those who claimed no religious affiliation, over 50% said they would describe Christians as, this is hard to take, hypocritical, self-righteous, and judgmental. Hypocritical, self-righteous, and judgmental. Yikes, right? We have a PR problem. But you see, here's the good news. Here's the good news. See, Jesus didn't see people the way oftentimes other people see people. And I got to tell you, you know, on a personal level, I can't tell you how many times um, I've actually wanted to say to people, hey, don't confuse uh, Jesus with like what you often see in how some Christians behave or how some Christians talk. Um, we have a PR problem. But you know, this isn't the first time that Jesus or his followers have had a PR problem. It's interesting. It's not the first time that Jesus or his followers had a PR problem. Uh, Luke, the doctor and historian, wrote about it this way, okay? Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You could almost hear the disdain, right? In first century Jewish society, tax collectors were despised as, as traitors who worked on behalf of the Roman government. And, and sinners was like this broad category applied to people who were considered hopelessly irreligious, okay? So you've got tax collectors who are despised. You've got sinners who are hopelessly irreligious. Now, it's interesting to me, all right, that our PR problem today is with what non-religious people think about religious people or Christians, right? That's our PR problem. But in Jesus' day, you see, his PR problem was with what religious people thought about non-religious people. And sadly, many people today think of Christians as a lost cause. Whereas in Jesus' day, see, the so-called religious leaders thought the tax collectors and sinners were a lost cause. But again, the good news here is this, okay? Jesus didn't see people like the religious people saw people. See, Jesus didn't see anyone as a lost cause. He didn't see anyone as a lost cause. And if we're hoping to overcome our PR problem, I think we need to see people like Jesus saw people, and we need to love people the way Jesus loved people. That would almost be like an amen comment. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> see, Jesus said the reason he came to earth was to seek and save the lost. 
That was his mission. And like Jesus, we have a mission. As a matter of fact, his mission is our mission, to seek and save the lost. But you see, if we hope to fulfill that mission, we have to see people the way Jesus saw people, and we've got to love people the way Jesus loved people. And if you leave with anything here today, I want you to just remember that. All right, let's go out and let's see people the way Jesus saw people and let's love people the way Jesus loved people. And you know what? One of the most obvious and frequent ways that Jesus saw people and loved people was through sharing a meal. Yeah. One of the most obvious and simple ways that Jesus saw people and loved people was through simply sharing a meal. One of the most powerful stories of Jesus doing this takes place over in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And I want, you to, I want you to notice first, as you look at this particular uh, text that's going to be on the screen in just a minute, I want you to notice first where Jesus' mission takes place, okay? We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 9. If you have a smartphone and you want to follow along, sometimes it's kind of fun, fun to follow along in the text, or if you have a hard copy of Bible, you can do that too, or of course they'll be on the screen. But notice where Jesus' mission takes place. Okay, in Matthew chapter 9 it says, As Jesus went on from there... He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. As Jesus went on from there. Now, see, this is interesting to me because I think one of the challenges we often have is that we view our mission as something separate from everyday life, right? And so we might say, yeah, you know, church on Sunday, that's mission. Or, or small group on Wednesday night, that's mission. Or maybe serving at a food pantry at Lincoln Park Community Services, that's mission, right? I mean, when I was a kid, Growing up in church, we'd have missionaries from all over the world come and, and share horror stories of what they were experiencing on the mission field. And I can tell you, I often thought, boy, if that's what it means to be on mission, I want nothing to do with that, right? I mean, thank God there are people who do go to very difficult places. But what I love about this right here, Jesus shows us that truth is we don't have to go anywhere to be on mission. As Matthew writes, it was as Jesus went on from there. As he was on the go, every day, day in and day out, he was on mission. And then also notice in this text right here, notice who did Jesus see as he went on from there? What does it say? It says he saw what? You can say it out loud. He saw, he saw a man. He saw a man. And I love that when Jesus saw Matthew, he simply saw a man. I mean, is there any doubt that everybody else, when they saw Matthew, saw a tax collector, a traitor, a lost cause? I mean, as I said, in the first century Jewish culture, tax collectors were hated. They were despised. Now, we live in the city, okay? You have to forgive me for this, but when I think of the equivalent of a tax collector today, I can't help but always think of the people who walk around the city in the orange and yellow vests and so diligently give us parking tickets and have on that vest the words City Revenue Department. Okay, it couldn't be more clear why they are giving us tickets, right? We've got to increase the revenue of the city. <laughs> And when I see one of them, I have to work really hard to see a person because all, all I can really see is more money come out of my pockets and into the city. And I, what I love here is that Matthew, you see, wrote this account about himself. All right? So Matthew, I think, recognizes here that when everyone else saw him as a cheat and as a traitor, Jesus just saw him 
as a man, a person. I love that. For Jesus, mission was a part of everyday life. When he saw people, he saw them. I mean, how about that time when, you know, Jesus intervened on when a crowd wanted to stone a woman caught in adultery? Jesus didn't see an adulteress. He saw a woman in some really tough situations. Or that time when Jesus touched and healed a, a man of leprosy. Jesus didn't see a leper. He saw a man with a terrible disease. He saw someone no one else dared get close enough to see. And here Matthew writes of his own encounter with Jesus, and he doesn't say that Jesus saw a cheater, a tax collector, or even um, someone that was not liked. It just says that Jesus saw a man. He saw a person. And then Jesus says to this man, what? Follow me. And he followed him, just like that. I mean, it's no wonder. Jesus may have been the first person to see him for who he truly was. And then we get to the fun part of the story. If we first see where the mission of Jesus took place, we then notice the mission of Jesus often centered around a meal. Look at verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Matthew throws a party for Jesus, and there is food, and there is likely a lot of very good food. I mean, in the ancient world, you know, the guest of honor would almost always be thrown a banquet. And the fact that Matthew was a tax collector meant that he was probably a little bit more wealthy than most everybody else, probably had a little nicer house than most people, probably had a little better food than most people. So this would have been a very nice party. I mean, it's the kind you want to get invited to. It's not the kind that you get the invite and you're hoping that maybe you have a conflict so you don't have to go. Yeah, you laugh because you know you do that. No, this is the kind where you rip open the invitation and you are hoping and praying you have nothing going on that night because you want to go. Yet this party wasn't limited to a buttoned-down crowd of respectable people. No, Matthew invites the outsiders. He invites the people he knows best, his friends. He invites the people the religious leaders would have definitely considered a lost cause. Right? Man, I just love this picture. Because it's the picture of a great meal with a surprising crowd of people you at least expect to be in Jesus' company. And this picture of a meal leads me to the last observation I want to make about Jesus, and it's that this was a meal and mission of mercy. This was a meal and mission of mercy. The scene with Matthew ends like this. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, you can almost hear the disdain in their voice. Right? Why in the world would he be hanging out with those people? The religious leaders, they just don't get the mission of Jesus or the power of this meal. Uh, they're way too concerned about who was invited. And then Jesus responds and he says, you know what, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I, I desire mercy, Jesus says, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and, and here's the point, you see, the mission of Jesus and the meals of Jesus ultimately remind us of the mercy of Jesus. 
the mission of Jesus and the meals of Jesus ultimately remind us of the mercy of Jesus. Jesus did not come for those who are healthy, but for the sick. He didn't come for those who are righteous, but sinners. And meals such as this one with Matthew and his friends remind us exactly why Jesus came. He came for those who would consider themselves a lost cause. A friend of mine uh, has a neighbor with whom he's just started talking to about his faith. And uh, when the neighbor heard my friend was a Christian, his neighbor said something like, oh, that's great for you, but Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with me. And uh, my friend had a really good comeback. He said something like, well, you know what? If that's what you think, then you're likely the very person Jesus would want to spend his most time with. See, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He isn't chasing down people who think they might be good enough to deserve him. No, he wants to share a meal with people who think he wouldn't want anything to do with him. All right, so what does it look like for us to live out what Jesus is modeling for us? I mean, how can we overcome this PR problem, right? Well, in this series, we're focusing on five everyday ways to love your neighbors and change the world, and they form an acrostic that spells the word bless. And let me just briefly walk you through it. Be us, we'll begin with prayer, right? And I hope you're still praying for those eight people that we ask you to write their names down week one when we started this series. L is for listen. The B is for begin with prayer. The L is for listen. Last week, John beautifully laid out how significant it can be for us to listen to people, just listen to people the way Jesus listened to them. The E is for eat. We'll come back to that. The first S in bless is for serve, and the second S in bless is for story. But I want to talk about the E in bless, which is for eat. Um, This is absolutely my favorite of the five. I'm actually quite good at this one. Uh, How bad can it be? You know, you come to church and the pastor tells you you need to eat more with other people. It's a pretty good day, right? But see, Jesus, it's, it's remarkable when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus shared meals with people all the time. I mean, just read through and look at all the meals that he shared with people. And I I think it's in part because sharing a meal has a a way of somehow moving almost any relationship from acquaintance to friendship faster than almost anything else you can ever do. Have you ever had that experience? You know, you you share a meal with someone who you would say, yeah, we kind of know each other. And then, you know, an hour, hour and a half over a meal and conversation, the next thing, it's almost like you're, you're best friends, right? And what I love about sharing a meal is that it's something you can do and not add anything to your already busy schedule. Think about it. How many meals do you already eat in a week? 21? Three a day, seven days in a week? Okay, some of you are saying, eh, maybe a little bit more, including snacks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just ask somebody to join you for one or two of those 21 or more meals that you are already eating, right? I mean, just, just picture a world... You know, just picture a world where all people from all different walks of life, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, every shade in between, are, man, sitting together, talking to each other, listening to one another, and sharing life over a meal. I think that's a picture that God longs to see. I love what Henry Nouwen wrote about the power of eating together. He said, he said, when we invite friends for a meal, we do much more than offer them food for their bodies. We offer friendship, Fellowship, good conversation, intimacy, and closeness. I think you'd be amazed by the impact of a simple meal, and you might find yourself helping others eat their way into the kingdom of God. How cool is that? 
And if this feels like a stretch for you, you don't have to do this alone. No, I mean, you know, what if your small group, you know, most, a lot of you I know are a part of a small group that meets throughout the week. What if your small group started having parties or dinners once a month and you invited neighbors, coworkers, friends? I mean, what if you skipped the Bible study once in a while? Shh, we won't tell John, Right? And, you know, you just hung out, ate, had a party. I mean, that could be somebody's first taste of your group or of God or of our church, right? For those of you that live with family, what if you invite somebody to share a meal with your whole family? I know that might be a little scary. (laughs) In their book right here, right now, our friends Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford uh, write about the power of simply sharing a meal. And they say, sharing meals together is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Do you ever think about sharing a meal as a sacred practice? And they go on to say, if every Christian family regularly invited a stranger into the home for a meal once a week, we could literally change the world by eating. How awesome is that? Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, you know, John, I'm not really great at hospitality, and I'm certainly no cook. (laughs) That's okay. Ask your friend or neighbor out to eat. I mean, here in the city, we've got great restaurants, right, at almost any price range within walking distance. And if you want to have somebody in your home, I mean, and you're not much of a cook, then just keep it simple. Order in. Or maybe you think, well, you know what, I'm I'm not much of an extrovert. You know, hosting a bunch of people, that's just kind of plain scary. Well, how about find another friend who's more outgoing and, and tag team it? Or, you know, just keep it small and simple. I don't know, grilled cheese and ramen. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Just you and a couple of friends. And finally, remember that the L in bless is for listen. Someone once said, if you want to win someone over, be more interesting than interest, or be more interested than interesting, right? Just ask questions and listen. Often, the less you say, the better. And if you think you're too busy, which I know so many of us think we are, remember what I said earlier. You don't have to add anything to your already busy schedule. Just ask someone to join you in what you're already doing. You're having a meal. See, and at the end of the day, I'm fully convinced that you will say it was well worth whatever effort you put into it. You know, I can remember, um, wasn't that long ago, actually, one of the first times Lisa and I, we were invited into the home of one of our neighbors, Doug and Steve. Uh, it was one of the first people that invited us into their home in our neighborhood. And man, we just felt so welcomed. They were so kind and hospitable. We had a great time. I remember when uh, we were invited to a, uh, a party uh, with a bunch of parents from the school where our kids were enrolled, you know, we, man, we kind of felt like we were wanted, like we were included, like we were, you know, part of the group all of a sudden. Just, you know, one party, one meal. I remember being invited to a meal at a Greasy Spoon restaurant uh, with a guy who spoke truth to me at a moment in my life when I desperately needed it. And it was a game changer. I'm telling you the power of sharing meals. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's It's powerful. It's profound. There's something spiritual. God shows up. Jesus says, where two or more come together in my name, there I am in their midst. Uh, How about this? I want you to just think for me a moment about the eight people that you wrote on your list two weeks ago. And if you weren't here, I want you to just think about maybe a couple of the people that even are coming to mind right now that you know you could ask to share a meal with you. Which one of those could you text even right now or in the next half hour and say, hey, let's, let's grab dinner. Let's grab breakfast. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Come on over to our, my place and, and let's just, let's break bread together. 
I mean, if you knew the only thing standing between a neighbor or a friend of yours and them finding their way back to God was you sharing a meal with them, would you do it? I think you would. I think you would. And if you want to picture the kind of difference a meal can make, you don't have to look much further than Matthew himself. One moment of mission in everyday life, an invitation for Jesus to follow him, led to a meal, a party at his house, where Matthew experienced the mercy of Jesus, and it changed everything. And you know, Matthew would go on and become one of Jesus' apostles and one of the early leaders of the church. History tells us that Matthew was a missionary to Ethiopia, and he actually shared Jesus with the royal court in Ethiopia. But maybe even more amazing than that, the account of Jesus' life that we're reading from today is from the gospel of what? Help me out. It's from the gospel of Matthew, right? Yeah. I mean, think about one meal with Jesus became a turning point in his life. So don't underestimate the difference a meal could make in the life of one of your friends. All right? All right, let's go eat. First, we begin with prayer. Pray with me, will you? Father God, thank you for the incredible example of Jesus. And, um, just how over and over again he shared meals with people and, and used that time of, of eating and sharing and conversation to just invest in people and to show him how much he loved them and believed in them. And God, we can do the same thing and through your Holy Spirit's power we can touch people's lives in profound ways Lord help us to be people who share the table with others help us to do it generously lovingly and reflect the kind of kindness that you have shown to others and to us we pray this in your name Amen we're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper now and there's a song we're going to sing after begin to uh, eat the bread and drink the juice and the title of the song has come to the table. Pretty appropriate, huh? Uh, but I just want to remind you that you know, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And again, the people that he shared meals with were not respectable. They weren't the high society types. It was the least and lonely. He ate with, again, people who many would consider a, a, a lost cause. And, and at this meal that we call uh, the Last Supper, uh, the guest list for that particular meal was the disciples. Uh, but they too were a ragtag group of broken people who surprisingly had a seat next to Jesus. <laughs> and when Jesus shared this Passover meal with the disciples, uh, he, he was very aware of the kind of friends he had. He knew that, that um, one of them would outright betray him for, what, a bag of silver? And then he knew another one of them, one of them he was closest to, would deny him, not once, twice, but three times. See, see Jesus knew what they'd done. He knew what they were going to do. And it didn't change the fact that they were still invited to have a seat at that table. It's incredible. And, and, and here's the good news for all of us. <laughs> Jesus invites us to that same table. And you know what? He knows all your past stuff. He knows your sins. He knows your present. He knows your future. He knows the stuff you're going to do in the future that you're going to be sorry for and you're going to regret and feel bad about and have to go out to him for forgiveness. And guess what? He still says, no, you come to the table. There's nothing you can do that would cause him to love you any more or any less. There's nothing you could do that will ever get you uninvited from this table. You're always welcome 
at this table. And at this table, we uh, were reminded of the bread uh, that he broke and said, this is my body broken for you, right? And then we also take the cup and we remember his blood uh, that was shed for us. So in just a few moments, uh, we're going to have uh, some ushers. They'll, I think I got this right. Come down here and uh, we'll have stations, one up here and one up there, where you can take the bread and eat it and then drink the juice. People will be there to give it to you. Um, and they'll let each row go uh, one at a time so you can wait for those instructions. Uh, but again, we're all welcome. And we want you to share in the Lord's Supper with us uh, this morning. All right? I'm going to pray one more time, and then the ushers will come down and stand at these stations and let people um, go to where they need to in order to receive the Lord's Supper. Father God, we are grateful for this table and that, um, yeah, there's nothing we could ever do or say that would eliminate us from being able to partake, that would un- be, that would uninvite us from this table that you so uh, openly welcome us to as your followers. And so, Lord, we're just grateful. We're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his forgiveness, his love, his mercy, his peace that he offers, the community that he gives us to um, experience together. Uh, we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.